Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. With that, uh, if you don't know me yet, my name is Graham, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance, and um, uh, I'm really excited that we can be here today and to study God's Word and to see what it has in store for us uh, today. So uh, I wanted to begin by telling you guys a little bit of a story. Um, So there's a famous story about this baseball player named Babe Ruth. Who's ever heard of Babe Ruth? Yeah? About half of us. Half of us have not, maybe. Um, but Babe Ruth was a, uh, a baseball player, and he played for the New York Yankees. Um, and in 1932, uh, the New York Yankees and Babe Ruth were in the World Series. There he is, handsome little fella. Um, and uh, they were in the World Series against the Chicago Cubs. And so the World Series, if you don't know, it's like the championship game. It's like what everyone plays baseball for. Uh, so the story goes that Babe Ruth, he, he comes up to bat in the fifth inning, and he starts getting heckled by the crowd, right? Like, they're, they're yelling at him. Uh, they're not a fan. And uh, so as that's happening, uh, the pitcher of the Chicago Cubs, uh, he throws two strikes against Babe Ruth. If you know baseball, three strikes and you're out. Um, and so he's got one, one strike left. And so it comes down to this last strike, and, uh, but before that happens, uh, Babe Ruth, he looks at the pitcher and he points his bat at center field, kind of like he, he was going to call what he was going to do next, right? And so the pitcher throws the ball and Babe Ruth, he hits this home run to center field, uh, which is pretty amazing. The Yankees, then they went on to, to win the World Series in the next game and Babe Ruth uh, became famous for his called shot, right? He predicted what he was going to do. I'm not a huge baseball fan, actually, but this was a story that even I had heard growing up um, because we really love stories like, like this, right? We, we, we love a good story like this where we find it amazing when someone can, uh, they can make a bold prediction and they can follow through with it, right? Um, we, what we probably hear less of are predictions made by people that don't come true. Um, we... We hardly ever hear when someone makes a prediction and then it doesn't happen, unless it's like Harold Camping, who predicted the end of the world in May, 20, May 2011, and that didn't happen. And if you don't know who Harold Camping is, then that basically just proves my point. Um, you don't hear these stories. So, um, and if you think about it, though, we often predict things uh, wrong far more often than we like to believe. Um, we're overconfident in our own abilities often, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but before we do, uh, I'm going to tell you another story of one of my favorite stories of another bold prediction uh, and someone who is overconfident in their abilities. So another sports analogy for all you sports fans out there. If you're not a sports fan, well, too bad today, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, so 70 years after Babe Ruth's famous called shot in the World Series, in a different sport... Uh, someone, someone else made another bold prediction, 
right? It was the, the wild card game of the 2003 NFL playoffs. So this is football. And the Green Bay Packers were playing the Seattle Seahawks. And so the game, it was tied at the end of the regulation time. Uh, and so it was going to go into overtime, sudden death overtime. That means that whoever scores first would win. So they do a coin flip at the end. And uh, the person who wins the coin flip, they get to decide whether they want the ball or they want to give the ball away to the other team. You want the ball because if you score first, then it's, you have more chance of winning. So instead of me explaining all this, why don't we watch what happened? Just ask Matt Hasselbeck. Seattle has won the toss. We want the so, ball, we're going to score. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That was over the PA system here at Lambeau Field, saying we want the ball and we're going to score. Hasselbeck was partly right. One of his passes did lead to the score. The Such was the nature of sudden death in the playoffs. So if you didn't hear what he said, uh, or you're listening to this on audio, what he said, he said uh, is, we want the ball and we're going to score. So he was very overconfident in his own abilities because he threw the ball to the wrong team and they scored. Um, and so as a lifelong Green Bay Packers fan, I hope that brings you as much joy as it did for me. Um, even though it happened like 15 years ago, whatever, you know, it's still fun to watch today. Um, but anyways, it illustrates what we're talking about today, and that is what the Bible has to say about arrogance. Uh, so what does the Bible have to say about arrogance? And, and we're going to be looking at that from our series in the book of James. James, for those who don't know, is a New Testament book of the Bible. And it's a short little, uh, it's written by the half-brother of Jesus, whose name was James. It's a short little book at the end of your Bibles. And so we as a church have been walking through this book uh, of James, and we're looking to see what it has to say and what we can learn from it. So right now we are near the end of that series, and we've called this series Faith Produces, because in it what we're exploring is what real faith looks like and what it will produce in our lives. So today, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4, and uh, the main thing that I want us to see today is that faith produces lives that are aligned with God's will. So faith produces lives that are aligned with God's will. And we're, we'll, we'll see that a little bit more as we explore our text for today. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in it to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And we're going to be reading through verses 13 through 17. So again, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. If you don't own a Bible behind Lynn there, there's a table and it has some Bibles on it. You can use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to take one of those home with you. Uh, that is our gift for you today. So again, James chapter 4, 13 through 17 is where we're going to be. Uh, let me read for us what it has to say. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So uh, as we go through our text for today, we're going to kind of split it up into these two sections, right? So the first we're going to call the wrong attitude, and the next we're going to call the right attitude. So the wrong attitude and the right one. So let us start off with the wrong attitude. So James here, he starts by addressing the church and he uses this hypothetical situation, right? It's likely that this isn't someone literally uh, saying this. It's not like a plan that someone came to him and said, is this a good plan or or not? Um, But he uses this as an example to the church. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And if we look at that on the outset, it actually seems like a pretty good plan, right? This person has, uh, they have a plan together for themselves. They're going to go into a town for a year, trade, and then make a profit. And it's not a bad idea if you ask me. Uh, he's even proactive about it, right? He says uh, that he's going to go today or tomorrow. He's not a procrastinator. He's going to get on it. Um, and he's going to bring a friend so he doesn't have to do it alone, right? He says we will go into this town. So He seems like he has it all figured out. And so you might be asking, what makes this the wrong attitude? Why is he wrong for planning this? Well, uh, one thing that I don't want us to think here is that making plans is wrong, right? James is not condemning the idea of us making plans. In fact, it is wise to make plans. It is a good idea for us to make plans. Um, There's a king in the Old Testament named David, and he writes this in Psalm 20. He says, may he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. So so don't hear uh, that the Bible is against you making plans, right? Making plans is a wise thing to do, but that, that it's the attitude in which we make plans that is important. And so then what is wrong with this plan? Why does James give us this warning? So I want us to look at two reasons why this is the wrong attitude to have when making plans, and then we're going to come back to the right attitude to have. So two reasons why this is the wrong attitude. Reason number one, this is the wrong attitude because this plan is arrogant. Number one is it's arrogant. Um, One thing that we need to take into account when we read this is that we can't actually hear the tone of the author, right? At glance, this plan, it doesn't seem that arrogant. It's simply a plan to go to a town, trade, and uh, trade for a year and make money. To me, that doesn't seem like a bad plan. But in reading it, though, we can see that James has a certain attitude in mind, right? Because I could say to you guys, I say, hey, this year I'm going to North Africa, and I'm going there to help some missionaries. Or I could say to you, hey, I'm going to North Africa to help some missionaries there. I'm going there to help some missionaries, right? In, In... There's a different attitude in both of those. In both, the content is pretty much exactly the same. It's exactly the same words, but it's the tone that's different. And that makes a big difference here. And that's simply what we cannot understand just from reading it. But James, uh, he tells us this if we just read a little bit further. Um, We see that his concern here is with an arrogant attitude. So this is what he says in verse 16. He says, "'As it is, you boast in your arrogance.'" And he says, all such boasting is evil. So again, his concern here is with an arrogant attitude, one that boasts in our own abilities, one that is proud and it says, look at me 
and all that I'm going to do. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You just watch. Keep your eyes on me. And I'm going to tell you something a little bit about the culture that we live in today. Um, I would propose that our culture, and even maybe some of us sitting here today, uh, we probably don't think that boasting is really that bad. Um, Of course, we would not say that out loud, but we might think that. Um, After all, boasting is is all around us. We see it in professional sports. We see it in politics. Uh, Pretty much any form of competition often involves a bit of trash talk. And so we've... We've, we've come, uh, become quite accustomed to it. And really, uh, even at its worst, it's fairly co- inconsequential, right? If we boast and we're wrong, uh, maybe we suffer a bit of a bruised ego or maybe someone's a little bit annoyed at us for a while, um, but that's about it. Uh, but I want us to give us another view of boasting today because the Bible actually has a lot to say on this topic. So let me read for you guys a few verses. First of all, in the verse that we just read, James calls all such boasting evil. So that's pretty strong to say that it's evil. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, Paul writes, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right? So in other words, even a little sin, such as boasting, becomes big and it is a very big deal. Uh, Then Psalm 34, it says, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. And then in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 9, he says this. He says, thus says the Lord, "Let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And I was reading through a number of these this this week. This is just a sample of what the Bible has to say about boasting. Um, There are many other other verses where the Bible talks about the seriousness of boasting. And so I don't want to take this lightly today. And the reason I don't is because the Bible doesn't. So again, uh, reason number one why this is a wrong attitude is because it is arrogant. If we look back at uh, James In verse 14, he says, You say that you will do this and you will do that, but yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here's what he's saying. He says, What what are you making these big plans for? You are only here on earth for a short amount of time. You are a mist in the grand scheme of things. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, so Why boast in your plans? So the problem, again, isn't in making plans. It's not, the problem isn't that he's making plans. The problem is that the plans are presumptuous. It makes assumptions about things without knowing. It says, we want the ball and we're going to score. Well, how do you know that? Right? How do you know that's what's in store for you? You don't. Again, on boasting, Uh, Proverbs 27, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. So it is wrong for us to boast, because when we do, we are making strong assumptions about what we have no control over. What we're saying is, is the things that God has in control, these are actually things that I have in control. And so reason number one why this is the wrong attitude is because it's arrogant. 
Reason number two why this is the wrong attitude is because it doesn't include God. Right? It doesn't include God. Because where do we see God in all this? We don't. Nowhere in the, this plan do we see God mentioned or any alignment to God's will. The plan is we're going to the town, we are going to trade, and we are going to make a profit. So understand that we cannot do anything without God's help, and God longs for us to come to him for help. We cannot make our plans happen on our own. This is another verse from Proverbs. It says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And then in uh, Psalm 127, to further illustrate this, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And this is what James is really getting at, right? He says, you say that you're going to do this and you're going to do that, and then the verse 14 says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this and, or that. Uh, so this kind of really leads us into our next portion of text, which we're talking about the right attitude. And this is where I want to spend uh, the remainder of our time because what we see uh, is, that our, is, is that James' concern is that we align our plans with God's will. Because we can try to make our own plans, but without God, our plans will fail and our labor is in vain. So what does that mean? What does it mean aligning our lives with God's will? And that's probably a phrase that you've heard thrown around before, right? Lord willing. Anyone heard that before? Yeah? Someone says, hey, I'll see you soon. And the other person says, Lord willing, right? Um, I remember actually I was talking to Dami. Uh, and I was planning on inviting her to something. I can't exactly remember what it was. It might have been like a barbecue or something. And I said to her, I said, hey, we're having this barbecue uh, at the park this week. You know, here are some of the details. And we'd, we'd love to see you there. And she said to me, uh, she said, okay, if the Lord wills. And I, and I thought to myself immediately, I was like, that was a really nice way of saying I definitely won't be there. <laughs> um, <laughs> because... Uh, you know, that's, that's a part of our culture, right? But she ended up coming, and I remember thinking, like, I really did not expect to see you here. <laughs> because, unfortunately, in our culture, that's often just a throwaway line, right? It has lost a lot of its meaning. And so, uh, let's look at what it means to align our lives with the will of God. So what is God's will? Well, in one sense, we can know God's will from what we see in the Bible. We can read our Bibles, and we can see that there are clear commands of things to do and things not to do. And when we are obedient to this, this would be aligning our lives with God's will. So sharing the gospel, uh, being part of Christian community, taking care of widows and orphans, all of these things, um, we know we are aligning our lives to his will when we obey his word. And there's a number of other things that we can know from his word. So you don't have to wonder, for example, hey, should I have an affair with this guy or girl from work? Because the Bible is pretty clear that that would not be obedient to the will of God. God does not will for us to sin. So we have clear directions from the Bible about how to align our lives with his will. 
But in another sense, knowing God's specific will for our lives can often be confusing, right? How do I know which job to pursue? Or should I get married now or later or maybe not at all? Or if you're like my wife, what do I choose on the menu? Um, <laughs> um, we don't always know what God's will is for our lives, and so it can be confusing. Here's the thing, though. Uh, like we see in this example in James, what we tend to do when we don't know what it is is we just make our plans ourselves. We don't include God. We just come up with plans, and our natural tendency is to make our plans without God. And I think this is what James is getting at here. So regardless of whether we actually are saying our plans out loud, right, whether we're boasting about them or not, um, when we don't include God in our plans, we are having an arrogant attitude. Um, one that says, I'm going to do things my way. I don't need God when I establish my plans. And so with that image in our heads, I want to contrast that now with someone else. So someone else who made it his plan to seek God's will in all that he did. And that's someone who we're going to talk about is Jesus. So if we look at scripture uh, over and over, it tells us that Jesus came uh, to live not for his own will, but for the will of God. And we can see this particularly in the Gospel of John. Um, it would be uh, interesting if to, to read that this week in the first half of the book. It's actually littered a lot with Jesus saying things like, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. And when we look at his life, that's exactly what he did. Jesus was completely obedient to God's will. He, was, he always obeyed God the Father, unlike us. And he was never boastful in what he did, but he always sought the will of God. And we see this even to the point of his death. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to take on the sins of the world on the cross. And so right before he is arrested, this is what we see him wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he, Jesus, he takes his disciples there and he tells them to pray. And he himself, he goes away to pray and he goes to seek God's will. And the, gospel record, the Gospels record what he said. It says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's saying, if, if, if you will, God, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to face death on the cross. It says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus was obedient to the will of God to the point that he was willing to give up his life and take on the sins of the world. Because that was the Father's will, so that we could have our sins forgiven. That's what Jesus wrestled with before he died, is what, what is God's will and how do I do it no matter what it is? And that's what James is saying to us. So do you wrestle with God's will for your life? Is that something that you have in mind when you make your plans? Or is your attitude, I'm going to do this and that and we'll see where God fits in? Because that's a tough question we have to ask ourselves. And I'll, I'll be honest, I'm nowhere near where I need to be with this. Right? I'm, so I'm saying this as much to myself as any of you here. And so if you are here and that resonates with you, 
if you realize, yeah, I haven't been including God in my plans. I've been arrogant. I do things first without seeking the will of God. If that's you, well, I have good news for you today. To that person, uh, there are two things that I want to tell you. Number one, Jesus has done enough on your behalf. Where you have failed to seek God's will, where you've been arrogant in your plans, Jesus has not. And he offers forgiveness to those who put their faith in him and believe that his sacrifice on the cross was enough. Those who say, I have failed, but Jesus has not, and it's only through his works, not my own, that I am accepted by God, those people God forgives. The second thing that I want uh, to tell you is that as you put your faith in him, the more your life will look like his. So in other words, faith produces lives that are aligned with God's will. It produces lives that are humble as opposed to arrogant. It produces lives that are watchful as opposed to presumptuous. And as we continue to put our faith in him, we are being transformed into the image that God made us to be. So how do we do any of this? How do we seek God's will for our lives? How do we align our lives with his will? So let me give us a few practical takeaways for how this can look like in your life. So the first uh, is through scripture. As we talked about earlier, uh, we can know the will of God from his word. And so reading your Bible is, is a good way to learn certain things about the will of God. And if the Bible seems intimidating for you, or maybe you're not sure how to read it or where to begin, I would invite you to get connected with a discipleship group. These are small groups that we have. And they're basically designed for us to explore the Bible deeper and how it applies to our lives. Right? And it's a good way to have others walk with you and as you seek God's will in your life. Another way would be through prayer and having a relationship with God. If you remember, this is what we saw Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. He was praying. He was wrestling with what God's will was for his life. He said, God, if you are willing, I don't want to go through this. He said, but whatever your will is, I will do it. Not my will, but yours, God. So let us seek God's will through prayer and a relationship with God. Um, I read this this week. Um, this is a prayer uh, that, of David in the Psalms. This will be on the screen. I would encourage you to write it down because this is a really good phrase, or uh, sorry, a good um, verse for uh, just that you can pray to God when you're facing Discouragement. So it says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. That's good. I'm going to read that again. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I would encourage you this week to, to pray that, or pray that wherever, whenever you are confused about God's will for your life prayerfully make your plans and watch how God is working in his will in your life. Because when we go to God and we seek his will in our plans, God works in our lives to make us humble instead of arrogant. 
we will see our lives align with his will. And then final, final uh, practical note here, how do we seek God's will for our lives? Well, we can do so by making plans according to God's will. Right? Ask yourself, how am I honoring God in this? Or how am I honoring others in this? How am I me- being made back into the image that God has made me to be? Right? Jesus came to earth to accomplish God's plan of redemption, to be obedient to his plan. So how do we look more like Christ? We do so by self-sacrificially serving others, by sharing the gospel, and being obedient to God. And you can include these in your plans. This is a verse, again, from Proverbs. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. Um, I want to close with this. We've talked about the arrogance of making plans without God and boasting in our own abilities. I want to share with you guys one more verse on boasting. And this comes from 1 Corinthians 1. This is Paul and he writes, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we can boast in the Lord because he gives us the ability to do all that we do. Right? It is not our power, so we have nothing to boast in of ourselves. But let us be people who boast about God, what God has done and is doing in our lives. Because his spirit lives inside of those who put their faith in Jesus and it empowers us to do all of this. Jesus is alive and working in those who put their faith in him because faith in Jesus produces lives that are aligned with God's will. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.